this is history. You are, you are living through a pandemic. And so I was able to take everything I had taught them in the first half of the class and say, okay, look, this is how this is playing out. Do you see the racism? Do you see the structural issues around healthcare access? Welcome to Black Educators Matter. This is more than a moment. It's a movement. Hey, it's Danielle. Welcome to Black Educators Matter. Our goal is to share the stories of 500 Black educators. We will celebrate the impact and achievements, learn from the lessons and challenges, and highlight the important roles that educators play in all of our lives. I'm excited to welcome today's guest to our show. As a do now, please tell us your name, your role in education, and answer the question, why do Black educators matter? First of all, thank you so much for having me. My name is Nicole Vick. I am an adjunct professor at Occidental College in Los Angeles, California. That's the college that Barack Obama went to for like a hot minute. <laughs> FYI, people are trying to figure out like, what's Occidental College? That Occidental College. I teach an introductory public health course there. And Black educators matter because I really feel like our lived experience brings so much um, vibrancy and uh, an, an additional wealth of knowledge to all students, not just black students, all students. And I think that's why black educators matter. Absolutely. What led you to becoming an adjunct professor and where are you from? I am from South Los Angeles, born and raised, honey. I live right now, right, like four blocks away from where we lost Nipsey. So I'm right mm. in the middle of South Los Angeles. I wanted to become an educator. Honestly, the first reason was I needed some additional income, okay? <laughs> I had a family. I was a single mother. Matter of fact, a teen mom. I had my daughter at 18, so I was really young. But by the time I decided I wanted to teach, I was like, you know, I need a little bit extra income. I want to buy a house. I want to, you know, do some other things. And so teaching was one of those ways to do that. I had a master's degree. And so I was like, oh, shoot, I can use this thing to teach on the side. So a friend of mine is the one that put me on to online teaching. That's where I started. And the rest is history. I've just been so excited. I, I think it's one of the things that, yes, is a side job, but I really feel like one, I love it a lot. And two, I also feel it's like my duty as a human being to teach what I know. Now, wait a minute, Nicole. Did you say you are a teen mom? Are you telling me that teen moms can get master's degrees? Girl, yes. <laughs> we can buy houses. What? We can pay for cars. What? We don't, you know, quiet as it's kept. Like, there's the, another side to the story. You know, the story actually continues on and the kids grow up and they're okay. And the mom is fine. And, you know, all is well. <laughs> Talk to <laughs> us about your story because that's not a teen mom story that we ever hear. For you to be a mom at 18, how did you pivot that and build your career, especially as a career changer, if this is like a second role for you? So, like, walk us through that. Take your power. This your show. I'm like, you sure you want to hear this? <laughs> it's a long story. It's actually not that long. So what <laughs> happened was, it's, it's long, but I'm, I'm going to give you the abbreviated version. So I was what I consider a... Uh, 
a, a nerd. I was the smart kid in school, elementary, middle school, high school, got all, you know, the straight A's. I was salutatorian of my high school class, all that stuff. But I think like a lot of young women, you know, who have low self-esteem, low sense of self-worth, not quite sure who they are. When you get that male attention for the first time, it's like, what? And so, you know, got with a guy in high school and we were sexually active and it was the summer before I started at USC. I went to the University of Southern California. I got pregnant and, um, you know, <laughs> there was some denial on my part. Like, why is my, why am I throwing up? What's, what's wrong with me? And, and I went to the doctor finally. She said, you're pregnant. <laughs> okay. Um, and so one of the things I think that saved me was the support of my family. So as upset as maybe they were about me being pregnant at such a young age, my mother literally was like, go to school. We're going to watch the baby, do what you got to do. And I had my daughter eight weeks early. She was a preemie. She could have died. We could be talking about an infant mortality, you know, situation here. But, you know, things worked out. She's here. She's 23 now. I literally had her on a Wednesday, went uh, they sent me home from the hospital Friday. I went to church because that was Easter Sunday in 1997. And I went back to school on Monday. And I did not look back. I did not stop. And people ask me now to this day, like, how did you do that? And what, what you know, compelled you to do that? And I said, you know, I really attribute it to being young and dumb in a good way. Because oftentimes as adults, when we think stuff through, we stop ourselves out of a lot of things. We were like, no, I can't do that because this. Oh, I don't have time. But I was young and dumb enough to say, well, why would I Why would I quit school? Like, I, this is not some tragedy. I did this to myself. So why not continue to go? And so I think I really just didn't know to, to count myself out. And I continued and uh, just made it happen. I just had to. I had to because now it wasn't just about Nicole. It was about Nicole and Andrea and how am I going to build a future for Andrea? And so that really is how things went when she was born. So I was going to probably be okay anyway. You know, I was, like I said, the nerd and the, and the, you know, the good student and I was going to go to college anyway, but that baby, that daughter of mine really helped solidify and make me responsible and accountable in, in a way that I don't think it's possible sometimes until you have that baby, like you can't give this baby back. <laughs> it's here. So you got to take care of it. So yes, we, we do. The story does end for the most part. Well, for most people, I mean, I won't discount that all of us don't have the same opportunities or, or have the same resources, but we generally do. Okay. Yeah. Shout out to Andrea and also shout out to you and to your family. So I worked at a school for pregnant and parenting teens. And when I worked at the other school and I let the students know like, oh, yeah, I also work over there. The responses that kids will have would instantly be so like judgmental, like, oh, my God, you work over there. And I'm like, the only difference between those girls and y'all is that they got caught having sex. Let's be very clear. The same girl, so just, she's still smart, she's still ambitious, she's still, she is still all of those things, but because she got pregnant or because she had a child or because you find out she's sexually active, all of a sudden her brilliance leaves? No, she's a human. She's a person. Absolutely. That's right. 
So I appreciate you telling that story and like really coming back, you know, like, no. And you spoke to that, like being young and dumb, you know, that's why I always say, listen to the kids. Adults are conditioned to believe what we can and cannot do. Right. And I had, I had an advisor at college. I think I was talking about the difficulty I was having, you know, USC is a predominantly white institution. You know, you don't see black folk around there a lot. So I felt out of place anyway, and I'm pregnant. And so I'm talking to this guy and I'm like, I'm having a hard time. I'm, you know, I don't understand a lot of the coursework. I don't know if I belong here. And his words were, well, maybe you should take a leave of absence. And I was like, no, why? How about how about offer support? How about where are the resources? You know. And so I remember walking out of that room feeling like, no, nah, man. And, and he was white. He was a white man. And I was like, no, nah, that's 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 not how that's gonna go. <laughs> I didn't work that this hard to get up in this school that I used. I grew up five minutes away from my whole entire life, but it felt a million miles away from. I didn't work hard to get up in this school for you to tell me to go take a leave of absence because I knew that if I took a leave of absence, what would be the chances of me finishing? How likely would I be to come back and finish? No, you ain't going to do that to me. Nobody. (laughs) No, you bet on you. So before you got to college, um, did you have a lot of black educators growing up or what was your K to 12 experience like? Amazing. And let me say this. I I don't know if I told you, but I wrote a book. It just launched on June 1st. And I talk about that, that in elementary school, all my teachers were black. Every single one. I went to a tiny parochial school in South Central. We we do have parochial school in South Central. And all the teachers, the principal was black. Our pastor was black. The music teacher was black. The PE, everybody was black. (laughs) And they all knew us. And, you know, there was that certain level of accountability, right? If you messed up, you getting a phone call. Your mama and daddy getting a phone call. And even more important than that, you as the student, oh, man, I messed up. And now I feel bad and I need to make this right. So there was just that certain level of, of, you know, relationship that we had that, you know, I think a lot of children miss out on because our classroom sizes are now so big. A lot of the, the teachers that are in certain communities may not be from that neighborhood and can't speak to the children in a way that the children resonate or understand. And then the, the teachers don't understand the students. Like, no, the student ain't got an attitude. That's, that's how they talk. You know, you got to understand that kind of thing. So I, my elementary school experience was amazing. And I think it set this, the stage for the rest of my life. Now, in junior high school, my mom, I don't know why, but my parents decided to send me to public school. And so I was like, this is culture shock. Like, first of all, the school, of course, is bigger, lots more students, predominantly African-American still. But there are other um, there are Latinos. I think there was a couple white kids there at the time. A lot of my teachers were still black. But I still, I did have teachers that were not black, but it was a, it still felt different. Like I, I talked to people that went to that school after I did, and there's a difference in the relationships. There are teachers that I can name to this day. I mean, I've been out of junior high school for how many years now that I, I see and they remember me. I saw one of them at a reunion. She's like, oh my God, I remember you. <laughs> like It's been how many years? Um, and then I went back to parochial school for high school. Um, and so the school again got smaller. My graduating class was like 35 students. So that much smaller. Yeah. Still a good mix of black uh, teachers mixed in with other teachers. So I had a, a interesting, 
you know, a fundamental sort of background as far as school is concerned. But that elementary school with all them black teachers, bomb, just amazing. That's why nobody could tell you what you couldn't do. (laughs) (laughs) That's why. And it was a a private school, too. So you had the love of God and the love of self in you from kindergarten. That's why. So what what did you end up studying in college and what is your master's degree in so we can talk about the transition to you teaching? Got it. So my bachelor's degree is in public policy and management. And there's a story behind that, too, because I wanted to be a nurse. I wanted to. Well, no, let's go back. I wanted to be a biomedical engineer. That's what I applied for when I applied to USC. I'm going to tell you right now, I have no idea to this day in 2020 what a biomedical engineer is. It sounded good. I checked the box. I don't know. So I wanted to do that. That didn't work out. I wanted to be a nurse. That didn't work out. I wanted to be a pharmacist. I was just so confused in college and undergrad I'm like I don't what am I I don't know what I'm doing here why am I here what am I doing someone finally said to me it sounds like you want to get into healthcare or you want to help people you don't have to be a clinician to help people public policy and you know healthcare administration can be a way to do that so that's where the undergraduate degree came from and my master's degree is in public health and I got into public health because I took a student worker position at the health department in the STD program, so sexually transmitted diseases. I'm answering the hotline calls about, ooh, my, my thing thing is burning or I need some condoms. And, and I'm working with health educators, and I'm like, these people are amazing. They're teaching people how to be healthy. And so that's where the love for public health came from. And I've never, I've been where I work now for 15 years and been teaching for 12. It's, it's amazing. It is amazing. Shout out to all the sex experts. In college, I was a sexual <laughs> health peer. So I've been an undergraduate HIV counselor. I've done that testing before, that risk reduction counseling, harm reduction counseling, teaching condom demonstrations, like all yes. of that risk, like all of that stuff. It is incredible because yes. it is incredible when you can empower people to like take that shame and stigma away. When they call in to say, I'm afraid something is happening with my body, walk them through, kind of take that anxiety down and then say, so moving forward, what can we do? Like, how can you empower yourself? So it is amazing work. It's amazing work. This is just one of many stories and we want to keep the conversation going. Follow us on Instagram at blackeducators.matter. Visit us online at www.blackeducatorsmatter.org. Help build the movement by joining our Patreon. Now, let's get back to our Project 500 podcast. Now that you are a teacher... What is that? You mentioned online teaching, too, because that's different, like being in the classroom versus being online. So how did you pivot to say, like, I'm going to become an educator? Um, Initially, like I said, it was really about money. Like, how do I, you know, add additional income to my life? A friend of mine and I looked into University of Phoenix. That's where we started our online teaching. And you're right. Online teaching is very different from face-to-face teaching. I think that, and I try to tell people this all the time, oh, I'm just going to go to school online. I'm like, it's harder 
to go to school online because you have to read, you have to do a lot of writing. And if that is not your strong suit, that it can be very challenging. So it actually may be better to take the sacrifice if possible and go to night, you know, classes at night or something like that in a face-to-face setting. It seems just a little easier. And so I started online with the University of Phoenix. They had an associate's degree program. I don't think people knew or know about that, but at one point they did. And I taught like a basic health course. And just me being my public health self, I was injecting public health into that. We had a set curriculum, but I'd be like, let me try to explain public health to you while I'm talking to you about, you know, a general health topics. And so it started there. And around the same time, because I'm a type A multitasker, I did get approached by California State University, Los Angeles, and they needed an uh, instructor to teach a basic health course. And I was like, sure, I can do that. And so I actually at one point was teaching online in one space, and then I was teaching face-to-face in another space. And um, I just really loved it. I loved working with students. I like interacting and talking with them, helping them with whatever they need help with. I've had students call me on weekends and say, my friend overdosed. I need help. And I'm like, I'm a kid. Let me figure out where to send you. And I've had students say, because of you, I want to go into public health. And I'm like, yes, we need you because we need these new these new minds and this new fresh perspective. So teaching is really, I, I mean, I feel like yeah, I'm, I'm doing a delivering a service to students and helping them. Right. But I'm like, I feel like it also helps me. Right. It keeps me um, excited about the work that I do and it keeps me um, engaged with young people, which I love. How has COVID-19 affected like you as an educator, especially because you do have that online teaching background and the in person? So how have you been able to adjust? Yeah, it was hard. They made a decision where I am now to cancel classes. I think most of the, I think almost every college in the country was like, okay, we're not doing classes anymore. We're moving to online. So I was okay. I said, okay, well, I got this. I'm just going to go ahead on, (laughs) take the lectures I was going to do and um, record them and then, you know, upload them and then give them discussion questions. Cause that's how um, my online classes were set up. You would have sort of a, you know, something to look at or read or do, and then you'd have to respond to some discussion questions. The only thing that I can say that I truly missed is that, you know, this particular class I had this past semester, we had started to develop a relationship. You know, I'm looking at them face to face in class and we had just really started to, you know, get a little bit familiar. And then spring spring break came. And then after that, it's like COVID. Nope. Eh, everybody go home. And I'm like, dang, I never got to have that relationship with them. And even though um, I did miss that, I, I think that something must have still resonated because I did get quite a few emails from students after the fact, like, thank you so much. Thank you for understanding. You know, we, we, we were struggling too and, and, and stressed out. And so we appreciate, you know, how you refashioned the class. One of the things I think that is really important in my case is that because COVID-19 is definitely a public health issue, I was amped. I was telling them, you are all living history right now. This is history. You're, you are living through a pandemic. And so I was able to take everything I had taught them in the first half of the class, which was basic public health fundamentals, and say, okay, look, this is how this is playing out. Do you see it? <laughs> Do you see the racism? Do you see the structural issues around healthcare access? Look, I'm, you see now it makes perfect sense. And they were like, yes, this is crazy. So that for me was like, how often do you get to teach a real life 
situation to students as they're living it. Like, how often does that happen? So it was cool. It was cool. I was really excited about it. I hope they were too, because I was like amped. <laughs> <laughs> Is racism a public health issue? Absolutely. Racism is definitely a public health issue. And there are strategies that we can employ to undo it. It has been done. It can be undone. Now, is it an easy thing like untying the shoe? Absolutely not. But if we are intentional, if we are focused, and if folks that have the power and the privilege are open to these conversations, we can undo this. The problem is that the people that have the power aren't as eager to give that up, right? Or to share, I'll say share that power with other folks. And that's where the problem is. It's amazing that sometimes people who really do not think that they are racist are so incredibly racist because they are so blinded to all of it. So it's, it's like so many levels and layers. But I had an entire conversation with a man today who was determined to say he was not a racist and he really wanted to work to address those racists over there, but then totally dismissed my experiences with redlining, even though I had screenshots. And there was another white woman who came on and said like, Google redlining and then talk to her about how this is not systemic. You just right. found one person. You just found one person. It's like, no, this is a system, an insidious system that permeates all these layers of our society. Yep. From top to bottom. People always say, well, how can we fix it? How can we fix it? And I'm, you know, this is my perspective and I'm sure other people agree or disagree how can you fix a house that's on a broken foundation? The foundation is crooked. Do we put do we put wallpaper on the walls and, and paint it and put some new curtains up? You got to tear the whole thing down. You got to start over. The things that we are um, used to as far as systems and structures in this country, I honestly feel like we got to, you just got to turn it over. We got to flip it over, flip that table over and start over because it's, it's, it's a mess. So what is the state of education in Black America? And how did we get here? Well, I think the state of education in Black America is definitely a result of the racism that we're talking about, right? So if, for instance, in public health, we, we consider education a social determinant of health, which means that the quality of the education, the number of years that you are educated has a direct link to how healthy you are and how long you live. We can literally look at graphs and charts in aggregate, right, across the board and say, dang, people that have a college education live five years longer than people that have a high school diploma. And it's not because people with a college degree are smarter. There are just some social structures that make that true, right? And, and we need to work on that. So what does that mean for a community, an urban community, a black community, where the teachers are don't have enough resources, they don't have as many years of experience, the school don't have no books, the facilities are towed up, and the high school graduation rates are low? What does that mean? We're pretty much setting people up for failure, not just in being able to get jobs and be employed because their school system is crappy, but now we're looking at a situation where we're talking about these people are also going to be sick 
and they're not going to have a long life. So again, I think all of this, this, the school system, our housing, you talked about redlining, our employment systems, all of these systems are based on this same very racist sort of foundation. And until we can fix those things, and again, it takes a lot of effort, I think we will continue to have the issues that we see in our communities. It's very disheartening because, you know, you go to a community, I'm, like I said, I'm in Los Angeles, you go to Beverly Hills, you go to Palos Verdes and Pacific Palisades, and you see schools that are beautiful, that are funded well, and, you know, they have all the resources they need. And you come to our communities and, and it's like, what happened? And I think some people that are on the outside looking in say, well, it must be because black people don't want to learn. And and we know that's not true. It's not. We just aren't given the same opportunities and aren't given the same resources. And it's just very disheartening. I also want to say that we also got to think about what our children are taught in these schools, in these public schools. I sent my daughter to public school because I couldn't afford parochial school. I was like, mm -mm, we don't have the budget for that. So you go going to public school. OK, <laughs> but what are our children being taught? What are our black children being taught about their history, about who they are? How is their culture and who they are being affirmed in these school settings? You know, we all know about the school to prison pipeline and all that other stuff. And it's like, again, another way to set up our communities for failure. And it's, I can honestly say that if I had known better, I probably would have not sent my child to public school. I may have even homeschooled her. But, you know, I'm a working mom. I, I, you know, but hindsight being 2020, I probably would have done that. And I think we as a society, as a black culture, may need to think about how we can educate our children in a way that affirms who we are. Because I think that's the, one of the missing pieces for us. Like if we can pull them all out at the same time and put them in some other kind of school, that would be so amazing. I, I don't know how feasible that is, but that would be like the ultimate dream for me. What did you get in your elementary school experience that you feel your daughter is missing in her public school experience? Again, just that relationship, you know, you know, we would see the same teachers year after year, you know, it, very low turnover. So even though you're in fifth grade, you're, my kindergarten teacher or first grade teacher is still there and they know who I am and they know who my mom is. And if I get in trouble, there's a phone call. The pastor's coming down. I just I just sent my pastor. Uh, I don't even go to church anymore. Just 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 saying. But I just sent him a Facebook message. He we was talking on Facebook message. I sent him a copy of my book like I talked to the principal, his wife. We, we're Facebook friends. So it's like that sense of community and relationship is there. And I don't think that happens. I mean, we've seen on the news those weird uh, assignments that come from schools about weird slavery. Like, what? What? That's, huh? <laughs> what is that? That doesn't happen. It, that didn't happen in the school I went to. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. This is so much. It is so much, but I think anchoring it to our health and our livelihood and our longevity individually and as a culture is so important. And I've never looked at education through that public health lens. Yes. 
Yeah. It's crazy to see. I, I teach a, one of my lectures is on the social determinants of health and we talk about education and it talks about things like, like I said, college education, five years uh, of, you know, life um, as opposed to high school, less likely to do things like pick up cigarette smoking, less likely to be obese. And there was a couple of other things. And like I said, it's like, yeah, on an individual level, sure, there's probably somebody in the world with a college degree that smokes. But that college degree person that smokes, they tend to actually have a better health outcome. Even So if you're a poor and you have less than a high school degree and you smoke and you put them against someone with a college degree that smokes, it's the same. The cigarette is the same. But that's that social structure in our society, that's that poorer person or less educated person is going to have a worse health outcome. And it's like this should not happen this way. It's not fair. And it's intentional. And that's the part that kills me. It's intentional. It's like, oh, oops. No, 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 no. It's, it's, this is on purpose. Because the system um, was designed to work this way. Yep. It was designed to work this way. Tell us about your book. So I wrote a book. I wrote, it took me a whole year to write. I guess which is normal, maybe. I don't know. But the book is called Pushing Through, Finding the Light in Every Lesson. And it is a, it's a, my life story, and it is layered um, over and through some of the public health concepts that we just talked about, education, housing, um, and how I got to a life of public health advocacy and social justice work, and how I built this love for community. And so there's a lot of life lessons in there. The teen pregnancy story is all up in there, how I told my mama at the grocery store. <laughs> she couldn't kill me at the grocery store right <laughs> um the story about you know relationships with men and again not knowing your self-worth and having some really bad relationships with men there's also discussions there around body positivity and body image and how you come into that and how i came into that and um i think it is a really good book for people that are looking for women women's empowerment books it's a good book for people that are interested in public health and social justice issues. The, the, the funny thing is the title, Pushing Through, I came up with that title with my book publisher and had no idea that that title would be so relevant to what is happening now, that we are literally, once again, in our country's history, Black folk have to push, have to push against to get to the other side, to push through and to fight. It's like, man. Oh, is there going to ever be a day when we can relax and be just whatever we want to be? It, it, it's it's amazing to me. But yeah, it's, it's, it's out now on Kindle. And then the hard copies or the paperback version will be available on September 14th. So I'm really excited about that. It is a number one bestseller on Amazon, which is like, what? I keep checking every couple of days. I'm like, wait a minute. Is it still number one? It's still number one. Come on, come on, come on for pushing through. I have so many thoughts running through my head, but I'm going to ask this question before we finish wrapping up. Speaking of pushing through and speaking of growth and remembering who you are and battling through all of these challenges, all these barriers that are set up against us, some self-imposed, some structural, you push through. What advice do you have for first year educators who are feeling overwhelmed or lonely or lost? And they need a word that will help them push through. 
I think one of the things that's so very important when you're starting is to latch on, find somebody else in the department or colleague that you know, maybe that are within that sort of subject area to get that support and encouragement. Because I know I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> can you? Can I see your syllabus so I can model? And that's what you do. Like, I, I need some help. Absolutely. Um, I think one of the other things I don't think I touched on yet, but I'll say it now, is that it is so important to use your life story to draw on it. If it's relevant, of course, to your topic that you're teaching, your lived experience to sort of amplify what you're teaching. I always come into my class with the South Central LA Black girl perspective to public health. And at first I was like, well, maybe I shouldn't be so, you know, this or so that. I, maybe I should kind of back up a little bit. But there's always somebody in that class that says, I'm so glad that you said what you said. I've been feeling the same way. Maybe they're Latina, maybe they're Black. And you're the first person that's ever said that. I'll also say this too. Oftentimes, I'm my students' first Black teacher. Okay, they get to college. They ain't had no black teacher until they get to me. So I think as that first year professor adjunct really, you know, take that into account, too. Like you may be the first face of color they've ever seen in their life. And and now is your time to shine and show them how uh, much magic (laughs) we have and how much we can offer. So, yeah, latch on to folks that are doing what you want to do that can help you with stuff like, you know, the syllabus, the the readings and things. It's okay to have those kinds of conversations because I did. I'm like, I need a copy of a syllabus because I don't know what I'm doing. And again, draw on that lived experience really to amplify what you're teaching. I think that is what is, that's the secret sauce. And I've had people in my department say, that is why you're here, Nicole. That's why we wanted you here because we need that magic that you have to, to teach these, these students about public health. So yeah, don't be afraid to let that shine through. Don't, you know, don't, don't come up in there cray cray, but you know, we have a special vibe, I think. And I think it's important to not be afraid of that when you're teaching. You mentioned your principal, you mentioned the preacher. Are there any other black educators that you would like to thank? Yes, there are at least, I would say three. So I'm going to start in junior high school. We had a teacher, her name was Brenda Bright, Brenda Nash Bright. And she was everybody's mama and she loved everybody. And she just had a certain vibe to her that all the students um, appealed. You know, we loved her. I'm th- I think I'm Facebook friends with her too still. And then there was another teacher, Miss May, Cassandra May, that also taught at um, my junior high school, which is Audubon Junior High School in South LA. Same thing. I'm, she's the one I saw at the reunion. And she was like, Nicole, yes, I, come on now. I know who you are. <laughs> and we had a nice conversation. And then the last person is Dr. Lavana Lewis, who is one of my professors in undergrad at USC, one of probably the only black professors I had while I was an undergrad. And she also has a strong community focus. And I got reacquainted with her working in public health in the community. I was at a meeting, a community meeting. I was like, wait a minute, that's my professor. <laughs> and so we got reacquainted. And she actually is a neighbor. I found out she lived down the street from me. So it's funny how, how at one time in my life, I felt so uncomfortable at USC. Like, I don't feel like I belong here, but now it's like, oh, uh uh-uh, we're going to use these connections, you know, and and work, work them to death. That's what I paid for that dang on trillion dollar tuition. (laughs) Absolutely. You paid for it. You paid the cost. Um, 
Where can we connect with you, Nicole? Do you have a social media presence or a website where people can come learn more about you um, and purchase your book? So the book is up on Amazon. If you search the title, you'll see it on Amazon. I'm on Goodreads. I just signed up with that. I don't even know what that is, but I'm on there. My daughter said do it, so it's done. Um, I think for right now, the easiest way to get a hold of me is on LinkedIn. Um, to search for me on LinkedIn. I do have a website, but I'm rebranding, trying to get my life together and get everything together. But that website is my name, Nicole D. Vick. In Instagram, Nicole D. Vick. So link, I think LinkedIn is probably the best way at this point. Perfect. Thank you for coming and being so vulnerable and transparent and like walking us through all of your experiences. I had such a good time. You let me relive my sex bird days, my sex positive days, like yes. all of that stuff, all the public health. It's so important to all of us um, yes. individually and as a culture, as is education, because they are connected. Absolutely. They are connected. So everything that you've done, it was, it is, and it always will be worth it. So thank you. Thank you. This was great. Thank you for listening to this episode of Black Educators Matter. Are you ready to share your story? Visit us online at www.blackeducatorsmatter.org to sign up. Remember, make excellence equitable and thank a Black teacher today.